Welcome to season three of the Media Podcasts, and this is episode six, the internationalization of culture. So I am the research director of, of Media. My name is Tim Mulligan. My primary area of focus is video. I'm looking at the digital video streaming landscape as uh, it evolves in this rapidly uh, transforming digital entertainment landscape. Now, joining me for this discussion on the internationalization of culture, I have my three colleagues from different parts of media covering different areas. What I will do is I'll allow each of them to introduce themselves before we start addressing some of the key topics in this admittedly broad subject area. So we'll start with Hannah. Would you like to introduce yourself, please? Sure. Hello. Yes, I'm Hannah Callert. I am the cultural insights analyst for or cultural trends analyst for media. Um, so I sort of sit in between all the coverage areas and look at the underpinning consumer trends between beyond beneath them. Yeah, that's me. Thanks, Hannah. Shristi. Hi, uh, I'm Srishti Das. I'm from India. I'm a part of the music consulting team and also sports analyst. Um, and I also dive a lot into emerging markets because I am from one of them, which is India. And yeah, really excited to speak about the internationalization of culture. And Chris. Hi, I'm Chris Thakra. I am on the consulting team with Srishti and focus a lot on everything that kind of goes on in the music industry, particularly around artists and creators. And yeah, really excited to dive into this. I'm not from an emerging market, but somewhere along the lines in my heritage, uh, my family were. So <laughs> we got a bit, of, a bit of insight there as well, hopefully to be able to bring. Fantastic. Let's begin. So how I'd like to start this off is to look at the area which I focus on initially uh, at Media, and that's uh, around streaming and streaming video. Now, the one of the really interesting trends which I believe is driving this internationalization, internationalization of culture is the role of subscription video-on-demand services, SVOD services, led by the likes of Netflix. Now, the reason why I'm identifying this as a key driver in the internationalization of content from a video perspective is because of the impact it's having on disrupting traditional formats for the TV landscape. So one of the areas that has been fundamentally disrupted by transition to a, uh, an on-demand environment is the removal of geographic constraints upon audience participation. So basically, the ability to engage in content is now restricted primarily by availability in different territories and ability to pay to access that content. So what that means is that it's possible to do something which was previously a concept but not a reality in the digital landscape, which was the monetization of this elusive long tail. Now, I'm sure our listeners will be familiar with the concept of the long tail, but just to recap, the promise of the long tail was the idea that because the internet had significantly reduced the constraints and distribution, it was possible to effectively market content to 
the long tail. So small niche propositions that would be able to have a sufficiently large addressable market because there was such a, a wide ability to reach them beyond the traditional constraints of programmatic and scheduled content distribution. Now, we are in that stage now with streaming for video because we have niche propositions that will never be mainstream in individual territories, but on a global scale, they create the same scale of audience participation that has traditionally been restricted to prime time viewing content. Now, the, the real fundamental challenging aspect of this from a, uh, a video perspective, which I want to discuss with, with all of you in this, uh, uh, in this uh, podcast, is we're making an argument in the video coverage of media that because audiences for SVOD content is now on our global, it actually means that the showrunners, the people who produce and run those shows, are able to create content that doesn't have to adhere to this additional four-quadrant programming of mainstream content, which is appealing to the under-25s, the over-25s, males and females. Very basic, generic uh, programming, but it's what's defined blockbuster phenomenons and mainstream primetime TV viewing. But we've moved beyond that. And one clear example of that, and I think I'd, I'd like to uh, bring this over to you, Hannah, initially, because uh, I know you've done uh, a bit of uh, work around this as well with your cultural trends coverage, is the breakout hit of Netflix's Squid Games. Now, this was a, a recent release, uh, which has done something which would previously have appeared to have been uh, almost an impossible achievement for a TV-type piece of content. It's a non-native English-speaking piece of content that is dystopian, that does not adhere to the four-quadrant programming, but has been able to scale at a speed that has never previously been uh, achieved by Netflix original to the extent that 111 million Netflix households have now viewed that content, which is just over half their entire addressable audience in uh, Q4 2021. So Hannah, what, what do you think has led to the, the breakout success of Squid Games compared to other Netflix shows that haven't had quite the same amount of traction? Why has it been this global hit? That's a very good question. I think when we when we start talking about the internationalization of culture and the concept of, of niche global audiences superseding a single mainstream audience, uh, we're not just talking about a diaspora that's watching content at home, right? That's been around for a while. What we are seeing now is young people who really want to tap into content from another culture. It's not just the same Hollywood big hits, it's um, wanting to watch a TV show from South Korea that took 11 years to get made because it wasn't expected to do well domestically. Um, Netflix has now done that with a couple of shows. They did it with Money Heist, which was not a hit in Spain and then was bought by Netflix and has become quite a big hit, maybe not as big of one. Um, and Dark as well, which is German and didn't perform so well domestically, but has become quite a big hit on Netflix as well. Why this in particular appeals, I mean, we've seen kind of the rise of dystopic content in general, which is a bit um, scary when you think about it too hard. 
from a cultural standpoint. But um, it was it's sort of a, a lens for people to to look at. I mean, we've just been through a pandemic. There's been a lot of like social unrest recently, um, a lot of like socioeconomic discrepancies. And this was a colorful, identifiable show that was very interesting to watch visually as well as in terms of storyline and a lot of plot twists everyone loves a good plot twist um and so it's just distance enough that people can can watch it without having to reflect too strongly on their real lives but then also gives them a lens by which to discuss or think about their own lives by looking at someone else someone else's culture and saying oh no i identify with that um so i think when we talk about internationalization of culture it's not just this old fear of like oh we're all going to have the same culture and you know where where is the uniqueness anymore it's more just an appreciation an ability to tap into something from the other side of the world and say oh i identify with that as well um, and have it be more interesting you know it's not it's not just the same the same stuff that the same studios keep putting out um, it's unique and uniqueness is very important in this saturated attention economy stuff that actually stands out and Squid Game definitely did that. <laughs> so, Hannah, that reveals some really interesting aspects of the dynamics here, which I want to explore uh, a bit further with, with Tristy. Now, the, th- the aspect which I find really intriguing about this and collectively at media we find fascinating about this is it seems like we're moving beyond a concept of global hits being based around US-centric content, that it's now possible to create compelling, globally resilient stories that, to your point, Hannah, give us an insight into a, uh, a culture that is of interest, but not directly related to the consumer's lifestyle, but allows them to get universal troops as a result of that which then builds upon global fandom. And Tristy, the reason why I want to come to you next is you've done a lot of work looking at what global fandom means, particularly from a sports fandom perspective. And you're looking at it from a perspective of choosing to become a fan and what that means as opposed to people who are almost born into the fandom, which we could argue is the same with US-centric TV content, you're born as a US, if you're in the US, you're born as a, as a fan of that. But if you're outside of the US, you ascribe to that level of fandom. So Shristi, could you talk a bit more about the dynamics there, please? I think firstly, like now with all of these digital platforms, not just Netflix, but Amazon as well, what's really changed is before it was whatever was in the movie theaters or on TV is what would influence culture. But now, because these platforms are available in all parts of the world, localization has been given a lot of importance. Now, it's actually the cultures that are defining what's what's on Netflix or what's on Amazon Prime. So all of a sudden, there's a lot of you know you can you can be sitting you know I'm sitting in India and I can I can see what you know people in Korea are consuming. Not necessary like Squid Game wasn't popular in Korea and was more popular outside of there, but it's. It's just being able to consume that that content. And I think that's exactly where sports comes from is, as you know, like I think football is one of the biggest examples where you see, you know, a Manchester United fan is going to, from Manchester is going to be so different um, from me, who I'm a Manchester United fan from India, where 
it just means that you know over there they will support the club no matter what so manchester united is going through a rough phase it doesn't matter it's just they don't really have an option it's not a choice for them to be like oh yeah i'm just going to look at some other team or whatever cristiano ronaldo being a part of manchester united or not they're still manchester united fans but then when you look at cristiano ronaldo every time he's changed a club the fandom has shifted from that club and that's because it's not just fans in portugal but it's fans all over the world that he attracts and netflix and some of these platforms have made it really interesting like when you look at money heist um in one of the previous episodes they had neymar appear on it while he's not from spain um he's from a spanish speaking or portuguese speaking country he's played he's played in the spanish league for a very long time and then to have him on the show was definitely interesting and then this season has carlos sainz who's formula 1 um ferrari driver and um mark marquez who's um a moto gp champion um and it's really interesting and this this goes a little into lean back which i'm sure we'll discuss um we discussed in the previous podcast as well carlos sainz drives ferrari he wears a red suit what do they wear on money heist red suits as well and it's really it's it becomes really interesting because it's sort of enhancing the spanishness of the show and you know it's it it's cool because you know people who are watching money heist because it's so spanish so culturally interesting which might be the reason why it didn't work so much in spain because it's way too relatable but it's not that really relatable to someone sitting in india and in india it's been a huge hit to the extent where like food delivery apps and stuff like that have been marketing marketing the show and it's and that's exactly what what's really cool right like you get to consume get to experience this culture and especially in the pandemic where you know there's no traveling you can't go to these countries so you're just experiencing this culture outside of it and you know going back to squid game i don't know how many of you have listened to both the english version as well as the the korean version of it the english version is drastically different it's like watching a completely different show and it somehow doesn't really work and it's quite it's interesting because then when you're watching it in korean you're actively um in engage with it you're leaning into to consume it because you have to follow all the subtitles but there's an example from india of this really big movie called bahubali um and they it's actually a south indian movie i think it's in tamil um and then it was translated to hindi and then it was translated further um to english and the way i see it it looks like it was someone from the indian team who actually decided to dub it and so it's been done in a very accurate way whereas when you look at squid game it's pretty obvious that it's been done by a us centric or a uk centric um team so it's not as accurate as you know how bahubali is where you can consume it in a different language of course a little bit is lost in translation that always happens with languages but um internationalization is only going to get bigger and better when the localized markets are actually taking care of the storytelling and making sure that it's narrated in a way that's different um squid game it's interesting because it's it's a story you know it's about the financial system it's very symbolic um but it's but the story is a very korean story the way that they look at 
you know, the rich people. That's not necessarily how the rest of the world looks at it. And it's just interesting to see what their perspective of the West is um, compared to the West perspective of the West, which is what we've been seeing since forever. Yeah. Um, Hannah, I know you you, uh, you wanted to respond to uh, something Tristy uh, brought up then. Something about the, the money heist and the F1 driver crossover that I found really interesting. I found out about it because an ad came up on my Instagram that was basically the driver. What's his name again? Mark, was it Marquez? No, it was Carlos Sainz and it was Estrella Galicia. There we go. Yeah, Sainz is in his jumpsuit in the set of Money Heist. And then the actual ad is him opening the the, the beer. And um, and I was just there watching it like, what is this an ad for? There's so many different things. But what they'd actually managed to do was combine three different entertainment behaviors in one or three different, you know, there's the lean out, lean in. Like, whatever you wanted to do, like, you want to participate, you can have one of the beers. Like, you want to go maybe watch some racing with your friends, that's still part of the vibe. Like, or you can just watch Money Heist. Like, and I think when we're talking about internationalization of of content, and we've also in previous episodes discussed just the gradual dissolving of content barriers, like barriers between different categories and different uh, types of content, as well as between, you know, creators and consumers. These, these barriers are just falling down between all different kinds of things. And there are some propositions that are taking advantage of this by basically having an advert that's featuring three very different things. And there are those that are still kind of struggling to maintain this like single track, you know, this, this kind of content, this kind of, um, yeah. So I, I, since you were talking about Money Heist, I really want to bring that up because I think it's really cool what they did. Interesting. Yeah, I think what... Yeah, I think what you have to say is really interesting because, I mean, you could either watch Money Heist or Formula One or drink a beer or you can do all three of them. Um, and you can do two of them together sometimes as well, which is, you know, drink the beer. And I think and also it's a very Spanish um, beer as well. So I think that's just um, a really, a really cool way to bring all three together and push it um, forward together because, um, it's just, you know, it's it's catering to many different fandoms in one go. And I think that's what we've been talking about a lot now, too, is that no one is a fan of just one thing. Everyone is a fan of multiple things. And to be able to cater to multiple fandoms in, in one go is just, you know, it's hitting the jack- jackpot, literally. So a theme here, I think, which is worth exploring a little bit greater detail is... Um, Hannah, you identified all these Netflix originals that were breaking through, and all of them were non-US centric, non-English uh, language originating. What we do have, though, there's this. There seems to be a strong current of of certain kinds of cultures that are excelling in this new uh, cultural norm. And I think this is a good opportunity to bring Chris in here with his uh, music expertise, because obviously, I'm, obviously, uh, I am talking and specifically talking about South Korea and how South Korea seems to be this powerhouse of cultural cultural disruption in the established um, the established uh, entertainment mainstream of the uh, the post war era, moving into the uh, the second millennium, but now. We've got we've got breakout hits in um, in the TV space with Squid Game, but of course we have the likes of BTS, which are 
doing something previously unprecedented with actually being able to break through into mainstream U.S. culture with a non-mainstream U.S. Uh, proposition. So, Chris, could you talk a bit more about that and how they've done it? What are the dynamics that work that are helping to drive that internationalization that's internationalizing the U.S. cultural experience as opposed to the norm being the other way around, the reverse? Yeah, I think you. we can talk a lot about the sort of nuances with the actual content, but it's important to remember the role of the platform and the channel as well. And if you think about how sort of in the noughties, it was probably like the last like hurrah of MTV. And, um, you know, even in the past sort of decade, MTV in a lot of different countries and different regions of the world are still largely pushing US-centric content um, to those places. And it's only recently, I'd say, that's actually been quite a sort of hard change. But when you think about a an act like BTS, they're part of a bigger movement that is bigger than just BTS. They're part of the whole Korean wave. They're part of this whole movement and um, export of culture and content from South Korea into these spaces like YouTube, which unlike the traditional sort of linear channels, they're almost like a free-for-all for the whole world to come in and to have its say and to have a voice and to essentially define what is uh, the most sort of trending content. And so when you get the development of these hybrid spaces that aren't dictated by any singular national um, or cultural like authority, you get this flow that goes across the world, that goes from BTS, their fans in the US. And bear in mind, you know, BTS still, with all their success, they still struggle to get radio play in the US on local radio stations. And that's largely because they're not part of this, this new space that YouTube is, that Netflix is um, creating as well. And in particular, over the past couple of years, TikTok has just absolutely amplified and I think that's a big part of you've got these hybrid cultural spaces, these, this third culture, if you will, where with TikTok now as well, you can have something popular on Netflix. You can have something popular on YouTube um, that then translates into streaming or through another platform. And then users can then lean out and they can express themselves and make memes of the content and to recreate the content and to start singing about it or dancing about it. And like you said, with Money Heist, you know, you can have a beer or you can watch F1 or you can, you know, um, watch Money Heist and be reminded of all of these different things. Well, now you can just scroll through your TikTok feed and have someone do a dance and it's going to remind you of BTS and it's going to remind you of a particular music video or a particular experience you've had. And the same with something like Squid Game, you know, you're seeing this mashup of culture and of content but it has to be in the right channel to be able to do that and in the right platform. So I, I was going to come back on that point, actually. So the, I, I find it intriguing that you've identified BTS struggling to break through traditional uh, media distribution in the US, but also not just the fact that the traditional distribution processes are, are ignoring this clearly strong cultural uh, product that's being introduced to the US market. But also, does it actually matter? Does it matter for BTS to be on local US radio if their core of their success is actually outside of traditional distribution for media in the US? Yeah, I think that's a good, it's a great question. And, you know, with 
things like YouTube and TikTok, they um, they tend to be more, I guess, like metropolitan, um, more kind of like urban centered audiences. And when you're thinking of like exporting culture, say from somewhere like South Korea, which is one of the more developed uh, Asian nations, um, and you look at where what other places have are participating in this sort of global space, you've got you know Hispanic um, countries, well, and Brazil as well, in particular, as in Latin America, really having a massive presence online and on YouTube. Um, you've got Japan as well. It's typically the more developed areas. And just because a country is developed doesn't mean that every community and every town and village is at the same kind of rate of development. You know, there's, you'll know from sort of where you lived here in the north of England that there's a lot of places around where you are that are very different from where you used to live in London. And so you're going to have different attitudes, different tastes, different engagement with content. And that is largely to do with sort of the channels and the content as well. So yeah, I think it it doesn't matter as much, but what the big shift that we might have been seeing over the past couple of years, um, in particular with the pandemic and the rise of TikTok, is that now these these sort of more rural areas can participate a lot more easily. Like the barrier to entry isn't as high. You know, you can, making a video on TikTok is a lot easier than making a video on YouTube, for instance. And, you know, there's a lot more exchange that is taking this, what used to be a niche third culture hybrid platform and area into something so much bigger where you could even argue that to a point where this is becoming the new mainstream and that these sort of hyper-localized cultures that don't engage with international and global content are now becoming the new niches. Hannah, I know you wanted to uh, to, to come in uh, and join uh, that uh, Always, fascinating, yeah. <laughs> fascinating deep dive into what this actually means at the, the kind of distribution level. Are all, all distribution uh, platforms equal? And clearly, I think we're seeing that they're not from this dynamic. Yeah. But yeah, go on, go on, Hannah. Yeah, I mean, just as, exactly as Chris was saying, it's about, uh, it's just as much about the platforms as well. Um, it's about content, even even user-generated content that's tailored to specific platforms. You know, like a YouTube video has a different format from a Netflix show, which is a different format from a TikTok video. And their value is almost derived from those different formats rather than if Netflix started producing shows that was like a Twitch streamer, you know, it wouldn't wouldn't be as appealing because you go to Twitch for the interactive nature of it rather than to consume the content. Um, and I guess as we're moving away from this four quadrant form of, of targeting, basically it's, it used to be very effective when you weren't able to reach your different audiences in different places. You access everyone through the same TV set, the same 12 channels or whatever. And so everything had to be targeted to as many people as possible within certain, you know, um, pragmatic guidelines so they said yeah fine we'll just quadrant it off but now you have algorithms that can hyper tailor whatever you want to see and give that to those audiences and that works from like the tiktok algorithm which is almost terrifyingly accurate and the the netflix one which will just show you what shows you probably want to watch based on what you've been watching and so it, it allows these shows which otherwise wouldn't be mainstream enough to warrant being aired in front of such large audiences to actually be produced and, and fielded to the correct audiences who do want to watch or listen to them. Um, and BTS is, is such a digital first, first proposition. I mean, it's a lot of young people 
um, who engage in hypersocial ways online, they're not necessarily listening to the radio. So yeah, maybe it doesn't matter that they're not on the radio because that's not where their their audiences are. That's not where their their super fans are. Chris. <laughs> yeah, I think to that point as well. Like um, you know, a lot of the examples you've um you've all given about TV shows that have become big sort of viral successes, they haven't been successful in their sort of domestic niche kind of lane. And that's almost precisely why they have become so successful, because this space almost kind of thrives off of the like anti-culture of what is being imposed by sort of the national or like local cultural authority. You know, a lot of BTS fans get so mobilized and almost activated by the fact that this massive culturally significant just behemoth of an artist is not being played at their sort of local radio station and it it's what really mobilizes this these kind of fan bases and i imagine it's a similar kind of thing with you know we've discussed with uh like something like squid game in that you know you can look at it the other way that because it's so big globally it's almost mobilized the sort of local korean fan bases against that and that you know old squid game was good but it's not as good as you know hometown cha-cha-cha or like some of the other like really successful korean tv shows and so it's almost like these two kind of spaces are like playing off against each other and in essence that's what really amplifies the content and the success of it yes it's always about the discussion that it generates right it's never just is this a good show or not anymore uh, like bts isn't just the phenomenon that it is because of the music it's because of the fans and the way that they act online and the same with these shows that we've been talking about like is, is that, that lean-out behavior? Does it cause discussion? I mean, a great example of it is, is genuinely Tiger King, which came out at the beginning of, of the pandemic, right? Was it a good show? I don't know, but everyone was talking about it online because it wasn't just about watching it. It was about engaging in the argument afterwards and, like, the, the memes and the debate and, like, all the sort of extra stuff that was happening around it that made it a cultural sensation, I suppose you could call it. <laughs> I don't know if I want to call Tiger King. It's one word for it. Sensation, but there you have it. <laughs> so this is something I, I was going to uh, bring up here. I mean, and also it's another part of this conversation that I want to expand into. Um, and both Hannah and Shristi and Chris, all in your respective coverage areas, you have been uh, looking uh, in greater detail into what Midi is describing as lean out engagement where the success of these of these niche hits that are making such impacts outside of their their domestic markets i guess we possibly can't call bts niche in any category but certainly squid game is niche at a, a in any market is in so how much is this down to the individual tools that are enabled on the platforms where they are thriving that allows almost the weaponization of the content so actually it can go longer and further and do more than traditional content that's on a, a one-way distribution uh, form of technology like traditional broadcast TV, for example. Yes, Tristy. I kind of want to speak about the opposite of, you know, Squid Game traveling abroad is, um, and, and we've, me and Chris have worked on this um, on a report as well, which is the access of 
this international content, especially emerging markets like India, and the example here is hip hop. Now, because because Spotify, not Spotify, Spotify only entered like ten years into India's first um, music streaming service. But you know, Savan Gana, they were bringing all of this um, hip hop to India for the first time, which maybe a lot of artists didn't even know that you know they could create this sort of a genre. Um, and they obviously listened to it, consumed it, and then they brought their own sort of, um, you know, aesthetic, their own sort of expression into it, and then created a huge hip hop culture now in India. So this is actually hip hop traveling, and I think there's like Dutch rap, and there's like you know uh, this the the genre has moved from the US to other parts of the world but it's taken on a completely different format and then that format you know like indian hip hop or dutch hip hop is again going back to the market and there's all of a sudden this you know hip hop in itself has changed because there's just so many different identities that are coming into the genre of music the culture is changing the people involved are changing and that is sort of lean out these people sort of coming in saying you know what um i'm listening to this music i really like it i think i'm going to give it a go and try to make it uh, myself and this is actually some of the stories that you hear from a divine or some of the bigger um artists here and they've you know they now these people are inspiring a new generation of hip hop artists which is now taking that genre which is not local to us and making their own music trishti can we say then that the success of hip hop in a market like india is a direct result of it being promoted on non-traditional distribution platforms so you mentioned sarvan uh, geo sarvan being part of this uh this new distribution of the content is that part of why it's been successful yeah um in fact um geo sarvan had also done this song which was there was a there was a huge hip hop movie called gully boy which is basically the straight out of compton india um version artist originals which is their which is the Geo Savan label actually did a partnership between Nazi Divine and Nas now Nas's label Masapeel has a JV with Universal and is promoting um Indian hip hop globally so yeah this is definitely like the main the main i mean at that point of time that was this was a non traditional media now it's the most traditional media but you know there goes as times evolve this has become the natural way of consuming promoting music because it has globalized um internationalized both in fact simultaneously genres the genre that originally came from new york and then the genre that india sort of made out of that genre from new york so the so that helps to explain the the role of streaming um for music genre adaptation adaptation and then almost like rebranding and resharing of the wider world beyond its core uh, original market chris i, I want to go to you now the you're doing a lot of work around creator tools uh, and the ability to be for have a almost like a micro form of production and iteration on what is still predominantly mainstream big business focused uh content so bts for example i mean you'll be able to tell me exactly how many members there are in the band but it's a big band and there are numerous songwriters and there's a big uh there's it's very much a production process to create that without wanting to offend any bts fans there i'm sure obviously the the quality of the music is excellent is the, is the creator tool 
revolution that's happening, is that going to enhance what Shristi's already identified as this ability to take non-local content and then repurpose it into a hybrid local international content genre then can get re-exported to the wider world to create like a second-order internationalization impact. Yeah, and I mean, even, you know, third-order going the other way back because you look at some of the most popular um, samples and sound packs that you can get for um, making music. So essentially... Um, these are sounds that are like construction kits, like almost like getting a Lego set for um, building out a record. Some of the most popular ones are to do with Afrobeats and reggaeton um, sounds. People are looking for that. People are searching for that. And people want to incorporate that sound into their music. And this isn't just people who are sort of south of the equator in Africa and Latin America um, or even in Hispanic regions in, um, in the United States. These are people all over the world who are being exposed to this music. I mean, Bad Bunny's the most listened to artist on Spotify again, and, you know, second year straight. And so this music is taking over the world and the sounds are taking over as well at a creator level because people want to be successful as creators. People want to emulate success. People want to go after the sounds that are being used by the hottest artists and hottest producers in the world. And these are global sounds and these are, things that are pop- the most popular on platforms like Splice and um, Looperman as well. And so, you know, there's a whole scene in the creator space completely around, you know, internationalizing content. And as these tools become more prevalent across all creators, then you almost get this weird homogeny that isn't because you've got all this diversity of the sounds of the world, but everyone is essentially kind of using them and everyone is outputting diverse content uh and so the sort of question is you know what's next is it anti-diversity in terms of like the content and that it becomes hyper localized it's sort of you know non-afrobeat or non-reggaeton sounds um yeah go on hannah um well i think what's what's been most interesting despite this push all this discourse about internationalization i mean when you say the word globalization it usually seems to have this connotation of sameness Um, But we're very much not seeing that, right? Like we're just seeing, for example, Indian hip hop is not hip hop. It's or it's not New York hip hop. It's its own genre of similar sounds, but with its own spin. It's become this new, unique thing. We're just seeing increasing diversity somehow by giving people new tools and new sounds and new things to work with. Um, What seems to be mostly, I mean... Every TikTok spinoff of a show or somebody else is not exactly the same thing, right? Everyone's got their own take on it. Um, what we are seeing is, is, as an increasing predictor of success, is something iconic, be it visually or audio, that people can sort of hook onto, but can then create around. So in some of the shows we've been talking about, it's very visual, or there's very much um, a specific song or... Uh, a mask or something but in terms of, of music genres as well there's certain certain beats certain sounds like the da from like latin and and you can take something that's very very simple and expand on it in so many different directions each one of which is unique but still ties uh back to the original um which is when you think about it how memes happen um but i think i've spoken way too much about memes on this podcast 
Yeah, Chris. Chris, you, you can yeah. you can have the honor of the final word in this discussion, <laughs> and the final Ooh. the final word in the uh, season three of the uh, Media's podcast. So go oh, for wow. it. Wow, well, I'm honest. Um, <laughs> I think my final word is basically to support Hannah's final word, and essentially, you know, I think what we're seeing is like you could give ten different painters across different parts of the world the same blank canvas and the same paints. And they're all going to paint something completely different. And this is what we're seeing in music and what we're seeing with content is that we're giving so many people the same kind of tools, you know, the access to tools. Um, that barrier has just completely come down. And now people all across the world have access to the tools to be able to make content, um, not just sort of UGC, but, you know, real high quality music, increasingly higher quality video as well. Probably not, might not be Squid Game standard, but you know, it's, you can, it's a hell of a lot better than it was a few years ago. And so when you give all these people, like so many people, just access to tools and the opportunity and platforms to create and to exchange culture, then you get the inevitable, which is what is this sort of creator renaissance and this incredible output of culture all across the world and it all feeding into each other and feeding back out. Excellent. Well, a very good way to, to wrap up the uh, this this episode. So, I'd like to thank uh, I'd like to thank Hannah, Shristi, and Chris for joining me on what is a fascinating topic and which we we will never have enough time to cover in the depth that's required for it in one episode. But we do have a uh, a weekly newsletter, and we do have many ways of finding out more about how media views this market. So please feel free to reach out to us if you want to speak to any of us about uh, these topics. Okay, I'd like to thank you for listening. Um, and if you haven't already done so, please take the time to look at the, the previous episodes that preceded this final episode of season three. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to keep up with all the latest episodes by subscribing to Media Research on your favourite podcast platform.